All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before we get into the pastors today, I just want to highlight a couple of things. Again, looking forward to kicking off Advent. Actually started last week, but today this is our church's way of kind of marking that season. And we're, I hope to see you all during lunch. Um, if you, feel free to eat with your friends, but would love to see different people say hello to one another. And as we heard last week, food just tends to bond people together. And so we really want to bond together as a community uh, over shared meal, a shared meal. So please come, even if you're super introverted and shy, uh, we welcome you to come and, and join us as we uh, break bread together. Um, also, as mentioned, uh, you know, the sermon series that we've been going through the past two months, we've been looking at the, the practices of Jesus. And uh, the whole point of that sermon series, it's not just to remain an idea, but for us to really practice this. Uh, and the reason why that's so important is, uh, I showed this paradigm before, but uh, we believe at our church, if you look on the screen, uh, right now what you're receiving, if you've been with us the past few weeks, is mainly teaching. And that's awesome. And that's really needed for us to grow and to change. Uh, but if you only have teaching, it just stays information. What we actually really need also as well is practices. Uh, we actually need to do it. It's not enough for us just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word, as the book of James says. Uh, but if you ever try to do anything by yourself, you know that can be really hard. And that's what a third element's really needed, which is community. We need people for us to really do this together, to practice these things together. And all of that is with the power of the Spirit uh, that is empowering us to do these things. And right now, again, the main focus that we have is teaching, but what we really need if we want this not just be information, uh, but genuine transformation, is we need practices and we need community. And again, I don't know about you, but if, if you told me, now go be hospitable, go read your Bible, I will do it for like a week or two, and then I am done, because it's just really hard to be doing this by ourselves. And so that's where, again, I really want to emphasize uh, for our church, like how can we practice together? How can we make this not just an idea? That's one big reason why we have formation groups. It is the arena for us to make this from theory to real life. Um, so I really encourage for all of you to, to sign up for that. Uh, if you're a member of our church, this is meant for you. My biggest question wouldn't be not why you should sign up, but why aren't you signing up? Uh, we're actually catering our community groups to meet every other week so that we could have uh, this a space for us to meet and to join. And it's going to be, again, four sisters meeting together, four brothers meeting together. Uh, we're going to make it life stage oriented. So if you're like a father who's like 38 and you're like a college student who's like 20, you're not going to be in the same group probably because that's for community groups. Uh, we do believe in you know, mixing the life stages there. But for this, we want uh, us to journey together. Um, so if you're someone who you're spiritually hungry and you're like, I just want to grow because this is a season we just are like really inspired to grow, I encourage you to sign up. If you're spiritually stagnant and a lot of you have told me like, I want to grow, but man, I just feel kind of blah these days, uh, sign up. This is the arena for us to really grow together. And this is a special one for you parents. Uh, I know it's hard. Uh, I'm a parent myself. Like kids get sick. My wife right now is not here because our kid is sick. And so she misses Sundays sometimes and she doesn't want to. Community groups, sometimes we go like once a month because we just can't because the kids get sick or we rotate. Uh, just know that's going to do something to our souls if we're only with the community like once a month or so. And this is where, again, formation groups, it's a time where you create your own schedule together so that we can have that time of community and accountability and spiritual growth. So all that to say is uh, let's grow together. Let's be a church that strives to grow and not just attend on a Sunday. And so formation groups, we have one more week to sign up. Uh, and if you sign up right now while I'm preaching, no offense taken. I'll just presume you're not on the internet. You're just signing up for formation group. And to kick off uh, the, the final message of this series that we've been going through, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. So if you have your programs, you can turn there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. 
And as you turn to Luke chapter 12, one thing we do as a church, if this is your first time here, is we believe that God, he's alive and he speaks to us when we read his word. And so when he speaks, we all want to recognize his presence. So can we all rise together and stand as we read God's word in Luke chapter 12? So Luke 12, it writes, someone in the crowd said to him, referring to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Father, thank you for everyone here. And as we head into this Christmas season, into this Advent season, Lord, would your, would your word just speak to us and help us, O oh God, to be a community that will live this out in a unique way, a way, O oh Lord, where we recognize that a Savior has come. And so as we learn this final practice of Jesus, may it be not just a theory in our minds, but really, O oh God, something that would transform our, our, our hearts and be used with our hands. And so bless us, O oh Lord, as we preach your word today. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So recently, I was shopping at Costco one of my favorite stores, and as I was pushing the shopping cart, I happened to make my way to- in the toiletry area, and I saw this huge sale on toilet paper, and I got really triggered. I was like, man, two years ago, I would have grabbed as many toilet papers as possible. I'm sure a lot of you remember uh, 2020 was a weird time when toilet paper was scarce because of COVID, and to this day, I still don't know why toilet paper, of all things, was like this thing that was missing. But I remember back in 2020, whenever I saw toilet paper at the grocery store, I would just grab it. Even though like, our home had plenty of toilet paper, I just had to have it. Uh, so that was like, just my mode back in 2020. But today, even though there's an awesome sale on toilet paper, I just don't really care to get it. Like, what happened? Like, why the different mindset? And social psychologists actually say this is a, a mode of thinking that's there. Uh, there's a terminology for it, and some of you might have heard of it. It's the difference between what they call an uh, abundance mentality versus a scarcity mentality. Uh, abundant, if you guys never heard of that, an abundance mentality, it's a mentality where you see the world as fully abundant. Uh, you uh, see that there's plenty for everybody. You are thankful for what you have. If somebody, a coworker, gets a promotion, you're happy for them because you know that, hey, you know what? They're going to get a promotion, and I might get a promotion one day. That's an abundance mentality. You feel like there is abundance. There's plenty all around. Versus a scarcity mentality, you have the idea that the world has limited supplies. You cling to your resources because of that. You notice what you need. And it's really hard to celebrate the success of your coworkers and your peers because if they get a promotion, you might think, I'm not going to get one now because there's only one promotion to give. That's a scarcity mentality. And often, you know, how do you have those different mentalities? Uh, a lot of times it's because of the way you were raised. A lot of times it's your social economic uh, position as a family, where obviously if you come from a place where you don't have much, you're going to have a scarcity mentality. What's really fascinating is even if you didn't have much and now you have a lot, 
you might still, in the midst of abundance, have a scarcity mentality. I don't know about you, but whenever my family, when I was young, we'd go to buffets, my grandma would go. And by the way, my grandma like, loves buffets. Something about Asian grandparents, like love buffets. And my grandma, every time we'd go, right before we'd leave the buffet, she'd be like, wait. She'd grab all this bread from the buffet, stuff it in a napkin, and hide it in her purse. And you're not supposed to do that in buffets. You're supposed to just eat what's there. But she'd stuff it all. And we always tell her, you don't have to do that. First of all, it's bread. Like, we have plenty of bread at home, but she's like, not this bread. And we're like, oh my gosh, like, just, you can leave it there. Uh, but I realized, like, my grandma, she actually grew very impoverished. And even though we had plenty of food at home, she was carrying with her still a scarcity mentality. She still felt like she had to cling on to what she had, to the resources around her. And the reason I share that is because a lot of us who live in the OC, most of you fall under the middle-class social economic scale, and a lot of us, we have what we need, and yet for a lot of us, there's a, there's a scarcity mentality that we still have. Uh, we, we cling to our resources pretty tightly. Uh, we feel we don't have enough money, we don't have enough time. Uh, we, we're, we tend to be blind to the needs of others. And the problem is, uh, what social scientists, uh, scientists say is that when you have a scarcity mentality, you tend to struggle a lot more in life. There's a lot of anxiety that kind of builds up. Uh, relationships kind of suffer because you tend to be really self-caring about yourself mainly and your needs. And so the question is, is there a practice to help those of us who feel like we don't have enough, who, str- who just have that scarcity mentality to really switch over from abundance? You know, oftentimes, we're, if we're at scarcity, how do we move to abundance? It's on the slide there. Well, next slide, next slide. Not there, all good. Oh, there it is. How do we, how do we make, if you're there on that scale, what do we do in order to switch that? And this is where today we're going to talk about it. Uh, the pr- key practice is actually generosity. Generosity is uh, it's similar to uh, simplicity, but a little bit different. Uh, if you want to know a very general definition of how we should understand generosity, here's a definition on the screen. Generosity, it is the practice of giving our finances, our times, our resources, or our talents to those who are in need. It's not about uh, having less, but it's more about wanting less. You can have uh, little things, but you can still want a lot. What generosity is meant to do is meant to free us from this enslavement to wanting more. It's meant to be this tool, this resource that chisels at that desire of want. And what happens is when we live, not primarily to receive, but when we're actually giving, the result is we become less attached to this world and we become more open to the Spirit's work in attaching ourselves to Jesus. And so to help us understand, though, what generosity is, we're going to look at this parable in Luke, and we're going to see how Jesus, he kind of touches upon this scarcity mentality, and we're going to talk about the need for generosity in three ways. Number one is the problem of generosity, why it's hard. Two, the power of generosity, what happens when you are generous. And three, the practice of generosity, how can we actually practice it? By the way, this sermon series, the structure is always so easy. I just have the basic three points that are there. I'm going to miss this after we do a new sermon series. But for now, you guys can continue to have that basic structure of the problem, power, practice. First of all, the problem of generosity. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, 21. So going back to the passage we looked at, the way the story starts is there's a man, he goes to Jesus, and he's asking Jesus to settle a dispute because some type of uh, inheritance happened. We don't know exactly the details. Maybe somebody passed away. He inherited land. And custom back then was you don't just talk to a lawyer. You don't just talk to a financial advisor when something like that happens. You talk to a rabbi because you want advice about that. And Jesus, he's a rabbi. 
And so in verses 13 to 14, if you can read that again, look what it says. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher or rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus, he's pretty much saying, hey, I'm not the official rabbi to oversee this because you're supposed to ask like a rabbi officially to oversee this, but this person just went to Jesus and said, hey, give me advice about this. But Jesus, he goes, well, but now that you're bringing this up to me, let me tell you a story. So be careful if you ask Jesus a question. He might use it as a moral lesson for a lot of us. And Jesus, what he does, he tells this parable in light of this dispute about a rich man who happened to have a huge harvest. So look what it says in verse 16 and 17. Jesus says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Imagine you get a Christmas bonus this upcoming Christmas season. Huge amount of money, like 10% of your paycheck all at once. What would you do? A lot of us, you might go on vacation. You might get that Tesla you're always hoping for. You might upgrade your uh, devices, electric devices. But if you're, uh, uh, if you're like me, you might just save it, put it in your bank account. And this rich man, he's kind of like us. He, he thinks wisely about his finances. And so what does he decide to do? Verse 18 and 19, look what he says. And he said, the rich man, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now what's very puzzling about this parable is that this person seems like he's doing nothing wrong. He's doing what a lot of us would do. In fact, when we look at him, we might think this guy's kind of smart. He must have read Dave Ramsey. He must have had a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad somewhere in his home where he knows how to steward his money. He's not like the prodigal son who just wastes his money on prostitutes and like crazy living, but he's just stewarding his money. And so we would look at him as smart, but Jesus, it's interesting, because when he evaluates this person, notice what Jesus says in verse 20. But God said to him, this is part of the parable, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That word fool, it's an Old Testament word that's very well known for just being stupid. It's a term that says this is not an intelligent way to live. And he's saying the, the fact that this person is using his money that way, he is not living in a very smart way. This upcoming December, in a few weeks, I'm going to go on vacation to, to Big Bear. And my wife and I, we, uh, we reserved the Airbnb for two nights, three days. The Airbnb is about $300 a night or so. And imagine, I'm not saying this is what's actually what our budget is, but if we budgeted $1,000 and we book an Airbnb for two nights, that means we have about uh, $400 left to play with, right? Imagine if we get to the Airbnb and I walk in and we go, oh, like, wow, this coffee table, it's really a lot smaller than we thought. Oh, this couch and furniture, that looks kind of janky. Oh my gosh, the bed sheets, those colors are really weird. Imagine if we see this and all of a sudden we decide to go to Ikea and we buy a new coffee table, we buy a new furniture, we buy new bed sheets, and we come back and we redecorate the Airbnb and go, ah, so much nicer. You would call me a fool. You would say, how stupid for you to use $400, not because those things are bad, but we're only staying at the Airbnb for two nights and three days. Why would you spend all that money that you have in your budget for those resources? And that's what Jesus is saying in this parable. Jesus is looking at this rich person saying, you're using it in such a foolish way, because the way we tend to think about finances and resources is we have two options. You either spend it or you save it. Spend it on something good, or save it for something good later. And those are the two ways we tend to think things of how to use resources. But throughout the Gospel of Luke, and throughout all his Gospels, Jesus, he always teaches a third way. 
It's not primarily just about spending or saving, but sharing, giving. This is the consistent theme of how we are to view our possessions in the Gospels. Luke chapter 6, verse 38, it says, Give and it will be, take, it will be given to you. Luke 12, verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the poor. This is Jesus' philosophy. If he was a financial advisor to you, he would have a huge portion in your portfolio asking, where is the percentage of you giving? Because that is the way that you are supposed to use your resources. Now, many of us, if you grew up in the church, you go, yes, I agree with that. Yes, that's true. And yet, for a lot of us, it's still really hard. It's still really hard. You know it's good to give. If you're a Christian or a follower of Jesus, you know I should give, and yet how willing are we to give? If you got that Christmas bonus, how much of that would you really give to other people? Deep down inside, it's actually harder than we think. It's harder than we imagine. And you know why we think that, why it's so hard? There's a couple of reasons. One is that a lot of us believe in this big lie, and here's the big lie that we all believe. We'd be willing to give if we just had more. If we had a little bit more, then we would give. It's similar to how I mentioned a few weeks ago, parents, the biggest lie that parents believe is, one day I will have more time. When my kids are older, I will have more time. Big lie, right? You never have time. The big lie that a lot of young adults have is, once I have more, once I reach a certain salary, once I reach my career point, once I purchase my home and I have room to breathe, then I will start to give generously. Biggest lie that you'll ever believe. The U.S. is one of the richest countries in the world, but statistically, do you know that 50% of the U.S., they give less than a dollar a year to charity? Less than one dollar, and we are the richest country. 41% uh, of the U.S. gives 2% of their income, 41% only. Do you know what percent gives 10% of their income in the U.S.? Less than 3%. If you are tithing at our church 10%, you are in the 97th percentile of the country. It's radical, and yet there's so much affluence in our country. You know which, uh, which states give the most to charity? Which states in the U.S.? Mississippi and Utah. And they are amongst the poorest states in the nation. You know who gives the least to charity in the United States? New Hampshire and Massachusetts, amongst the richest and most affluent in the country. And we ask ourselves, well, why does that happen? Why, why is it that if I have more, it's harder for me to give away? And it's actually very simple. It's much easier to donate $50 than $500. If you make $500 a month and you give 10%, that's like $50, it's actually really easier to give that than it is when you're making about $5,000 or however many a month and to give $500 that month. It's really hard. So if you're unable, if you're making part-time and you can't give that little percentage, it's going to be way harder for you when you have more. Because if you to give more, it's just really challenging. So for us, one reason why we don't give or it's hard to be generous is we, don't, we believe in this lie that if we just had more, we'd give more, but that's just not true. Every study works against you. There is no statistics or any surveys that say that's true. But here's the second reason why a lot of us, we struggle to give, to struggle to practice generosity. The reason why is because we actually, if we're honest, deep down inside, we seek validation in our money and possessions a lot more than we think. A lot more than we think. I'm not saying we're greedy here, and you might think, well, I don't look at my money or my bank account going, oh, I'm so validated. Like, no one does that here. And I think the reason why we don't do that here is if you don't ever look at your money thinking, oh, I feel so validated, it's probably because you're in the middle class bracket. The poor, people who are in poverty, they look at what they don't have, they look at what their resources are, and they measure their worth based on that, and so it's very low. 
versus the affluent or the rich, they will measure their worth oftentimes by their assets and what they have. And so that's, that's kind of the, the paradigm there. But the, if you're in that middle class bracket, how do you find validation? It's not in how little you have, it's not how much you have, but one author, he says it very interestingly, he said, it's actually not in, the, it's in the, the taste that you have. It's your uniqueness that makes you stand out. David McRaney, he's an author, and he, he says it like this, quote, for middle class people, you compete with your, it's on, the, it's on the PowerPoint, he says this, you compete with your peers, middle class, by one-upping them. You attain status by having better taste in movies and music, by owning more authentic furniture and clothing. Having a dissenting opinion on movies, music, or clothes, or owning clever, obscure possessions is the middle-class way of people to fight one another for status. They can't out-consume one another because they can't afford it, but they can out-taste one another. In other words, you know why you're really down to get that Taylor Swift concert ticket and show it off on social media? You know why you're really into different types of restaurants or foods, into different trips and vacations? It's our way of having status. It's our way of standing out. It takes resources. It takes money. So you are not finding your validation in the amount you have. You're finding validation in the uniqueness of who you are. And so we actually have a lot more of a stake in our possessions than we realize. And that's why we struggle practicing generosity. Not because we're greedy, but we do want a certain status in our life. And the problem is if you keep doing that, what ends up happening is you are in this chronic state of dissatisfaction. This chronic state of, am I good enough? Do I have more? That's why one author says like this, quote, on the screen, some people, they live in poverty because they do not have the income to buy adequate food, shelter, clothes, and medicine. But some people who have a lot of money can live in a different kind of poverty. There's the poverty of anxiety of imagined scarcity, of vulnerability, and of dissatisfaction. How regularly do you give yourself to others? How regularly do you, are you generous with your finances, with your time, your talents? You see, for a lot of us, if we're honest, we think when Jesus talks about being generous to give, we think that's the right thing to do, but we don't think that's a smart thing to do. Because we know we have things to do. We have life savings. We have a view of money that stands in contrast. Even though it's right, it's not smart. That's why it's so important to remember Jesus in this parable, he does not call this rich man a sinner. He calls him a fool. He is someone who is not intelligently living his life because if you think that's the way you're supposed to live your life, Jesus has a different idea of what reality really is. Because Jesus, when he talks about giving, he wants to break that scarcity mentality so you can live the fullness of life the way you're supposed to. And that leads to the second point, the power of generosity. Notice after Jesus shares his parable, he says this interesting remark in verse 21. Look what it says. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He talks about this person in the parable, he's rich towards himself, but there's a contrast, there's an opposite. There is someone who can be rich towards God, someone who is generous. Now, what does it mean to be rich towards God? What does that look like? And I think there's actually an answer to that. When you practice generosity, You are rich towards God because it frees you from something. When you give, it frees you from that enslavement of wanting more. And we know that Jesus, when he describes being rich towards God, that's kind of what he's referring to. Because do you know what passage comes right after this parable in the Gospel of Luke? This is where if you're using your Bibles here, you have a great benefit. You could just check and see. But if those of you in programs like, well, what happens after this? After this parable, what does Jesus say? And right after this, it's that famous passage in verse 22 to 23 of do not be anxious. Look what Jesus says. After he says, be rich towards God, it says on the screen, and he says to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. 
You know who a rich person is? Rich towards God? You don't worry. Free from anxiety. Free from wanting more. Free from desiring more. And the way we experience our freedom, we give. We practice giving. There's a great book called The Paradox of Generosity where they say that it's very interesting. You would think if you would give your assets away that you would be worse off because you have less assets, you have less net income. And yet through all the studies that these sociologists did, they said they could not believe how the more generous you were, all the statistics show that they were happier, healthier, less depressed, more purposeful, flourishing in life. Versus everybody who were part of that 1%, that 1% they give just like, you know, a little bit, like a dollar a year or so forth, for some reason they're all less happy, unhealthier physically for some strange reason, anxious, less purposeful, withering. And it's almost like generosity, when you practice it, it does something to us. It puts money in its rightful place in our hearts. It makes us not focus so much on ourselves, but pay attention to others. And that's why all the studies affirm that when you practice generosity, it just does something to you. It changes you, not just in a, in a mental way, but even physically. When you practice generosity, if you join us for that Christmas event, something's going to happen. You're going to feel good. And it's not just the Holy Spirit that's making you feel good. It's, even, it's your brain. When you give and you give to people, what happens is your enhancement, these chemicals get sent up dopamine and serotonin so that your uh, pleasure, pleasure, uh, pleasure gets uh, increased and your stress gets decreased. And so could it be Jesus, he knew exactly what he was talking about. Jesus knows that as human beings, you were made, you were designed to give. You flourish when you give to others. I love what author Eugene Peterson said. He says, quote, birds, they have feet and they can walk. They can walk and they can cling. But flying is their characteristic in action. And not until they fly are they living at their best, gracefully and beautifully. And in contrast, giving is what we do best. It is the air into which we were born. It is the action that was designed into us before our birth. Giving is the way the world is. That is the way creation works. You are made to give. You find joy when you give. And the reason why you find joy when you give is because you were created after a God who gives. And so generosity doesn't just free us from this desire and enslavement of want, but it does the second thing if you practice generosity. It empowers you to trust when you give. When Jesus tells his followers, do not be anxious, he doesn't just say, don't be anxious, but he always bases it upon something, God's provision. Uh, verse 24 to 33, a f- famous passage, Jesus says, consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, and yet God feeds them. Consider the lilies, how they grow. But if God so clothes the grass, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, sell your possessions, and give to the needy. Years ago, a friend of mine uh, if they ask me, like, hey, we're going to Vegas, what should we eat? You know what I tell them? Have you heard of this place called Lotus? It's the best Thai food in the world. And if they ever press me on it, going, really, is it that good? I'd be like, I have no idea. I've never had it. But people tell me it's the best Thai food in the world. Now, a few years ago, I actually went to Vegas, and I had Lotus. Let me tell you, best Thai food in the world. And if you press me on it, is it really that good? I'd be like, yes, it is because I've tasted it. It's so good. The best Thai food you'll ever have. A lot of us, you've been told, hey, God's going to provide for you. You know God's going to provide for you, right? And you go, yeah, yeah, I believe that. But when push comes to shove, when finances are hard, when you lose your job, God really can provide for you? And a lot of us, it's just a theory. And that's why what actually has to happen is we have to practice this. 
to believe that God actually provides, you practice with your, with your resources. You put it to the test. You put it where I'm gonna practice this and trust in the Lord. And that's why it makes sense why Jesus in his life, he was the most generous person who walked on this earth. He gave his resources, he gave his time, and most especially for you and I, he gave his life. How was he able to do that? Because he practiced generosity. And he, when the more he practiced generosity, what happened is something was building in him that he trusted in the Father. And that's why Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, it says this, quote, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He knew going to the cross, as painful as that would be, he knew the Father's provision would be over him. A banquet awaited for him because of the Father. He trusted his father to give generously. And that's why he was able to give to us. And that's why throughout church history, the church, they give themselves constantly to the poor. They were known historically of ministering to the poor, to the widows, to the orphans. Why? Not because the church were the richest people, not because they were the most educated people, but the church believed in a generous God. They trusted in a generous God for them. And so that's why we as a church, us who believe in a generous God, we're called to practice generosity because when we practice generosity, generosity, it frees us from that enslavement and wanting more and empowers us to trust in a loving Father who's generous to us. Now that leads to the last point, how can we practice generosity? No matter where you are in the socioeconomic bracket, you can practice generosity. Some of you, it might be your finances, but even if you don't have finances, a lot of you have a lot of time, a lot of you have a lot of talents, a lot of you have a lot of space in your life to give yourself to other people. And that's something that for a lot of us, we have to consider, am I being generous with my life? But we, as a church, we don't want you just to think about how you can be generous, but together, we want to be a generous church. And that's why for one of, a part of our vision, if you're new to our church, we say as a church that uh, we want to be a church that serves as a faithful presence in the city by seeking its welfare. We want to be known as a generous church. We don't just come to Bonner Park and use the resources. We want to offer resources, offer ourselves to other people. And we don't want to just do this alone. We don't want to be like colonists who just go, this is what you need, Bonner Park. Like we want to figure out, well, what does this place need? And that's where we look to organizations to figure it out and help us. And so we try to really come alongside different organizations to really meet the needs that are there. So if you guys don't know, our church, we do a couple things. One is at Bonner Park High School. We serve lunch to the staff. Uh, and just to let the staff know, like, hey, we're here, we're a church, and we appreciate what you guys do in the city, educating children, allowing us to meet in the space. And so we try to serve the staff here at Buena Park just a meal, just to bless them and encourage them. Another thing that we do is we partner every month with uh, this church called Orange Methodist Church, and it's part of the OC Food Bank. And at the OC Food Bank, once a month, we have our community groups meet and we give to those who are in need in the city. You'll be surprised how many people are in need in the city. We're shocked by how many people show up and we package food and we give it to them. That happens once a month, and it's awesome. I love that our church, we don't just do this random event and we never hear of it again. Like We want to partner so that it can have long-lasting change in the city. And so that's the type of mercy ministry that we want to do. That's the type of generosity that we want to practice. And that's why we're really excited because we want to partner with this ministry called Olive Press, which you mentioned earlier. Olive Press, there's a ministry that we've been, or an organization that we've been talking to where we've been coming alongside of them and we did a mental health fair with them. We did another event and we hope to serve alongside them this upcoming Christmas season. Um, from what I know, uh, at least what Jennifer tells me, they, they really like us. I know she says that to everybody, uh, but so far we're, we, we appreciate that sentiment because we like them. And again, we really want to um, 
we really want to engage with them, and we really want to meet a, a need that I think she could explain a lot better than what I can. And so uh, Jennifer, she's the Church and Community Engagement Director, and uh, she's been corresponding with us uh, constantly, and this is one practical application of what we want to give uh, when it comes to generosity. So as Jennifer comes up to share a little bit, can we welcome her? And she'll share a practice of generosity with our church. Thank you so much. And we do really, we do for real really like you. Pastors like to be told that too. My husband's a pastor of 25 years. So I just want to say thank you so much for your hospitality. I am really so humbled and honored to be here. And uh, just a little bit about, uh, I'm going to talk kind of high level and um, share a story and then talk about, you know, what this upcoming possibility is to serve. So just want to quickly say, if you're new to knowing what All of Crest is, our tagline is All of Crest, strong families, safe kids. And our mission statement is that All of Crest transforms the lives of children in crisis through the power of God, family, and community. And that's also, you know, the mission of, of the church. That's, that's what God allows us to be a part of. And that's, as Pastor, Pastor Tom's talking to you today, this is such a great opportunity to talk about Olive Crest. So um, what I just want to say quickly is we at Olive Crest are celebrating our 50th year as we serve children. I, I work in our Orange County region. We're serving over 2,500 kids a day, actually, throughout all of our programs. And what I just want to say to start this conversation, and as you've been in this series is what we know as believers is that God is the God who came near. And through Jesus, he stepped into the hard, the messy, the forgotten, the unseen, and the abandoned, and he called them friend. And he calls us friend. And Jesus later instructed his disciples, and we see in his word that he said, now take up your cross and follow me. And so we have this instruction and we're empowered through the Holy Spirit to live like Jesus, as you've been hearing in this message series. So just two anchor scriptures I want to quickly point to as we have this conversation of what is close to God's heart when we're talking about vulnerable children. James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And another scripture, Psalm 68, 5. God is a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. And want to point out again, all of us get to be in a family, the family of God and the church family. And that's why it's my honor to partner with the local church in my role. So just some quick high-level facts. There are over 400,000 youth in the foster care system in our nation. Just in LA and Orange County alone, there are 26,000 youth estimated in foster care. So Orange County, about 3,500. And of those youth who are not adopted into families or reunified with their birth families, what you're looking at is about 50% that then um, are going to be homeless, incarcerated, or fall victim to trafficking. They are the most vulnerable population. And what we know is that the system is very overwhelmed. It's understaffed, it's overwhelmed, it's underfunded, 
But we believe as an organization, as Olive Crest, and, and throughout scripture, as you see God's heart, we believe that there is hope and we believe that the local church is really God's plan for that, to step in, to come near, just as God's instructed us to draw near and to say, what can I do to be a part of this? And we at Olive Crest believe that the local church should be our primary partner. And so that's why I have the honor to be a part of our church engagement team and to build amazing relationships with Pastor Tom and Richard and our ministry leader, Sophia. And I'm just so thankful to see this great momentum at Grace Hills. And so our mission with our church engagement team is working with these churches throughout all of our regions to train and equip and educate and advocate that there would be more than enough. And I love that this message was talking about that whole um, scarcity mentality to abundance because God is the God of more than enough. We know that. And churches are full of resources. So we just need to educate, train, and equip so that we could recognize that we are all a part of God's big more than enough plan to come alongside vulnerable youth. And so um, what does that look like? We want to be a part in partnering with local churches to have more than enough homes, more than enough foster, home, foster homes, more than enough families just short-term in ministry, opening their homes through our Strong Families program, or more than enough volunteers, which many of you can be a part of, who come alongside families, maybe preventing child abuse, building real relationships, educating throughout all of our programs, there are opportunities to serve. So with that, we always say at Olive Crest, everyone can do something. The problem is huge. Everyone can do something. And what I would just ask for you today is you hear this, and I'm going to introduce you to through a video, someone named Ruby. And so everyone can do something, but what is your something? And so your something could be that you are called in the future, maybe sometime soon, maybe your future family, to be a foster family. And so I'd like to introduce you to Ruby, and I'd like you to hear um, just a really special story, and Ruby's from Yorba Linda. They're such an amazing family. Um, Monica, the mom, is the children's director at one of our partner churches. And um, it's just incredible to see these young women grow into who God has called them to be. So just um, to, to close, what I hope you hear is I say, everyone can do something. What is your something? So you're hearing the story of Ruby and her family where they, they were called to be a foster family. But there's so many other opportunities in partnering with Olive Crest to opening your home just short term as a strong family volunteer. We can talk about that after service. And then to be a friend or a champion. And this is really right now where we're focusing with Grace Hill specifically with this upcoming event. Being friends and champions are supporting those, one, who've opened their home to to a foster youth um, or to help with resources and volunteering as a champion. And so I just want to say thank you. Um, as it was highlighted, we had this great event last May that we had so many volunteers from Grace Hills come. We also had an opportunity recently in our visitation center where your team came in. And I'm not just saying this. The staff did say that that was their favorite volunteer team they've ever had come in. So that's a real thing. And it was because your community brought energy, positivity, prayer, 
prayer, you were interceding, and it makes a difference in the lives of these kids who are coming from trauma, for them to have this visit with their bio parents who are working to be reunified, to have our volunteers of faith there that are just, you know, speaking encouragement and life, and and it, it makes a difference. And so I just want to highlight this upcoming event. You can sign up out on the patio. We'll be at the lunch to December 15th. What this is going to be, we have a lot of different events during this time of year where we serve different programs. We are going to be serving the youth that come to our mental health program and some of our really vulnerable um, kinship families. And specifically, the kids who are referred to this program are kids who are coming from abuse. Um, They're coming possibly from trafficking and um, some real challenges. And so we have an opportunity to provide a really special night of celebration. And we're going to have dinner. And they're going to get to shop in our Christmas store. And so I really would ask you to be one of the people that will sign up. We're hoping for 20 to 30 volunteers from Grace Hills. And um, just to close, I'm going to tell you one one quick story. This is what can happen with the power of prayer in that we had recently, um, a couple months ago, a baby was born, tragically born um, in a garage. The baby was um, less than two pounds, um, drug addicted, and was in the hospital and was put... um, on life support and was told that the baby wouldn't survive. They were going to transition the baby to hospice. And so they reached out to Olive Crest and said, this is very rare. Social services reached out and said, do you have a family? Kim's, you already heard this story. So, okay, I won't do as good a job, but I'm going to try. Um, They said, do you have a family who would be willing, this is rare, but just to come to the hospital to sit bedside and be kind of their hospice family. And so for six weeks, five hours a day, this husband and wife who have fostered many babies through Olive Crest, they have grown kids, they don't want to adopt, they just want to foster. And in these six weeks, something um, miraculous happened. This baby gained weight, this baby was taken off of hospice, and they said really this baby was resurrected to life. And the baby was then placed with this family on a breathing tube and the baby is now growing and flourishing. And this was a baby that they said will not survive. And this is just this faithful family that said yes, that partnered with God in prayer, but spoke every day over this baby. You are loved by God. You are created by God. God sees you. God loves you. And that's what we all have the opportunity to participate, whatever that looks like, whatever God's calling you to. So thank you so much, and I look forward to meeting you after service. Thanks.